Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration in guided prayer and meditation. Today we talk with Alexander John Shia. Born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, Alexander grew up as part of a large extended family that had emigrated from Lebanon a generation previously. He grew up with the ancient traditions of Maronite Catholicism and was expected to become a priest, a family tradition since the year 1300, but he was led otherwise. He attended the University of Notre Dame and received a degree in cultural anthropology, a master's in counseling education and religious education, a graduate certificate in pastoral psychotherapy, and a PhD in clinical psychology. His training includes some time in Switzerland with Jungian analyst and founder of Sand Play Psychotherapy, Dora M. Koff. Alexander John Shia, welcome to Methods. Thanks, Troy. It's great to be here. Um, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, Quadratos and uh, and your in your work and your book, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, came to be involved in the work that you are. Uh, um, great question. Now, I try to be somewhat brief. Many, many decades ago, when I was in college, I had this uh, rather passionate, erudite professor who was teaching in the theology department. And his name was Joseph Campbell, the American mythologist. And he came every spring to the University of Notre Dame and, and uh, did these seminars in the theology department talking about the one great human story that is going on everywhere. And he was the first person to introduce to me the idea that all great stories are told in four parts. And I just had this thought intuition at that moment, and we're talking about the early 1970s at this point. Was there a connection between his talking about every story being told in four parts and the fact that Christianity had four different gospel texts? And perhaps some people don't know the name of Joseph Campbell. He, Joseph Campbell died in the late 1980s. But if you know the Star Wars movies, if you know Matrix, if you know a whole range of movies and scripts, um, all of those directors beat their way to Joseph Campbell's door to study with him because Campbell had synthesized the world of, of sacred literature and mythology uh, down to this four-part great story. And he would say that if you didn't have all four parts in the story, that the human family wouldn't stay very interested in it. That, And uh, the movie industry found that he had a formula that provided them great success, and so they, they found their way to him. But for me, he opened up a key that I followed for um, from the early 70s until the year 2000, trying to figure out was there a credible way that the four Gospels could be understand, understood in the way that Campbell was talking about every great story is told in four parts? And his name for the great story was the hero or the heroine's journey. Well, I won't give all the by lanes that I went down and many rabbit holes and Many times I uh, felt like I was trying to force Cinderella's foot into the slipper. But, but finally, in the year 2000, a friend of mine put a book in my hands, and it was called The Four Witnesses by this Anglican scholar 
at Oxford. And what he did is he synthesized the history of the Christian community where we believe the gospel for that community was composed. Uh, For instance, we think that the gospel we call Matthew came from a community in Antioch. Well, when I read his description of those four communities, that was the final key to me. Now, I should say that I'm a theologian, I'm a spiritual director, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have studied greatly Jung and archetypes and symbolism, etc. But in that moment, when I read these four narratives about the communities where the Gospels were composed, the doors flew open. And I suddenly saw the possibility that each one of these texts that we call a Gospel are simply one chapter of a four-part story. And the four-part story is precisely the great human story, the universal story that Joseph Campbell is describing, that in this way of understanding, the Gospel of Matthew is the threshold story about uh, what, let's see if there's a simple way to describe this. What I would say the Gospel of Matthew is, is all of Jesus's teachings about how to face change. That what organizes the text is not the life story of Jesus. Certainly, the text is the life story of Jesus, but that's not what organizes it. What organizes is it, it was a gospel that was composed for a community that had total, everything that they believed was fundamental and stable was gone. The temple was gone. The Jewish priesthood was ended by massacre. The holy city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And they were bereft, and they didn't even know if there was going to be a future. Sound somewhat familiar? Yeah. And and this text was written to them about how in the midst of the ashes of their life, they could face this moment of change and, and move forward. And that the Gospel of Mark is written to the question of how do you move through a time of tremendous trial and suffering? That the Gospel of John is written to the question of joy and relationship and creativity and vitality. And the Gospel of Luke is written to the question about how we mature by serving. And there it is. There was there was Joseph Campbell's four-part story where he says the first part of the story is hearing the summons to the journey. And the second part of the story is moving through great trials and obstacles. And the third part of the story is receiving a gift or an insight. But the fourth part of the story is returning to your everyday life with the insight of the gift and using it to build up others. Mm. So, um, so that's but my work is to uh, put these great old truthful texts on an entirely new basis, where we can look at the, each one of the four texts as the truth of a spiritual practice. And the spiritual practice can verify the historical truth of Jesus. What do you mean by that, that the practice can verify, verify the historical truth? That, um, that these great authors, whoever they were, sifted through the, the large body of information about Jesus 
and gathered it to teach people a, a, a spiritual practice. So that when I read Matthew's text, I'm seeing what Jesus said and did, but I'm not seeing it as a historical basis alone. I'm seeing it as this is how Jesus teaches us to receive a moment of change. Mm. And that those small changes in the text, uh, whereas other scholars have seen these small changes as disconfirming the text, I'm seeing them as the great teacher setting the text in the way that people would understand in that moment. For instance, in Matthew, the Beatitudes are set on the top of a mountain. Whereas in Luke, the Beatitudes are set on a plane. Now, is it important for us to know where Jesus said it, or is it important for us to know that Jesus said it? But the author in Matthew, choosing to give us the Beatitudes at the top of the mountain, well, the whole Gospel of Matthew was written about the effort to climb the mountain of God because the Jewish Christians understood that at the top of the mountain of God is a new epiphany, is a new understanding of God, is a new awareness. Mm. And in the moment of the loss of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the massacre of the Jewish priesthood, the people had to go up a new mountain of God. And and just think about the effort that it takes to go up a mountain. I, I do a fair amount of mountain climbing. I wouldn't say repelling. But um, you know, there's less oxygen. There's more exertion. You, you have to use muscles that oftentimes you aren't accustomed to, to using. The views are incredible, but the amount of heart pounding to get up there uh, is, is, quite, is quite large. And this is so much Matthew's experience because Matthew was talking about to wake up and face change is going to take exertion. It's not, you can't just kick back in the lounge chair and wait for it to happen to you. Mm -hmm. And so he sets his text, he sets every important thing in his text as on the mountain. Uh, not because he's necessarily giving us the historical video cam of where Jesus would have said that, but that he's giving us the, the practice of what it is like to wake up as we are in, imbued with the wisdom and presence of Jesus. Okay, so, so would you identify the path of Matthew and the, the um, exertion of going up the mountain with the initial stage of like waking up, as, as Richard Rohr might say? Is that exactly. synonymous? Exactly. Or? exactly. I mean, the Buddhists would say taking the seat, um, you know, Richard Rohr and others of us would talk about, uh, you know, waking up, beginning the new journey, mm -hmm. uh, beginning the process of metanoia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and it's an exertion. And what's so interesting is that so much of Christianity will talk about the three-step process of, of transformation. But they forget that the first, the first step, it's actually a four-step process, because the first step is the decision mm -hmm. to make the journey. Yeah. The activation of the will towards 
whatever step is is next yeah. in whatever particular model you're looking at, whether it's purgation or or what Which have is, you. Which is, I mean, that 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 next step is purgation. It's what Matt, what Campbell would talk about the trials and the obstacles. So that would and be then Mark come, then. In, that's Mark. Okay. And then comes illumination, which is John. Mm-hmm. And then finally, union, which is Luke. And union is bringing the illumination back into ordinary life and, mm-hmm. and having it serve, having it serve your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't have thought of that, Luke being uh, about union. I would have initially thought John would be union since it's different than the synoptics in, in a certain way. But, but that makes sense because Luke is, you know, like you said, going back into the world with the gift that you've been given is sort of similar to, to a bodhisattva, like a, you know, not detaching from the world, but participating in the world with detachment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like our, the bodhisattva's decision to not leave until everyone quote unquote is enlightened. Mm -hmm. What are some specific, if you can give us like some specific examples, I know you said one from Mark was the, the mountain earth from Matthew was the mountain, but what about Mark and John and Luke, as far as specific things that tie in to those themes? Well, and, and what was so phenomenal was as I as I began to uncover this, I, I think of it as a radical new way to understand the gospel, but actually it's very much there in the first five centuries of, of our tradition. But each of the four texts is written on a landscape, and the landscape is very, very much part of the spiritual practice of it. So Mark is written about desert and sea. Because to the Christian Hebrews of the first century, the desert and the sea were the places of trial, and we might even speak of as death, ego death. And what we really miss in the text of Mark is that the Sea of Galilee, to the Jewish people, the Sea of Galilee was a, was a cemetery. It was a tomb. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and Jews didn't want to go anywhere near that water. And the reason was is that that lake had such violent storms. And the fishermen who went out on that sea to bring food back to a starving people were heroes. So the disciples are not simpletons. They're heroes to the Jewish people because they already know how to face death to bring back food to feed the people who are starving. But that sea was greatly feared. Um, because of the storms and the the number of Jews who drowned in the storms on that sea. So when Jesus walks around that sea in the text of Mark, we think, oh, we're seeing a a travelogue of where Jesus went. But what we're seeing is the author is talking about this, this place of inner death is actually the place that God is waiting for you, Mm. that this is a hallowed death. This is an ego death. And that you and that by that grace and that presence, you can go there and be transformed. What significance does uh, the actual you know miracle of Jesus walking on water? How does that relate to the the ego death that the disciples are facing on that lake during this heavy storm? So the, there are four crossings uh, in Mark. 
and you will see Jesus uh, increasingly acting in the face of chaos. And you will see the disciples increasingly more fearful and Jesus actually getting a bit impatient with the disciples because they're not understanding that um, we want God to take away the storm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's part of the Gospel of Mark where the teaching is, yes, pray to God. And if it is right, God will remove the storm. But the deeper teaching in Mark is there are certain storms that we are to go through with God. And so we always have to pray for the discernment. Is this a storm that it is right for God to take away? Or is this a storm where God is with us to walk through? That's kind of directly relevant to the state of the world right now, I'd say. You know, how do we face the change, the momentous change that we're facing amid the the coronavirus and putting a stop to all our normal routines and normal ways of being in the world? And and then how do we move through that suffering without trying to ignore it or push it away? Right. And I, one of the most beautiful things about the text of Mark is it was written to the Jewish Christians in Rome in the year 64, 65, and they had been condemned to execution falsely for setting Rome on fire. And, and the Emperor Nero said, anyone who believes in the Christus, the Christ, um, is to be uh, executed. And um, this text was was the basis of their anchor in God. And, and it was such a beautiful anchor that we historically know that we have accounts of eyewitnesses in the, in the, um, the Circus Maximus watching the Christians die. And what they wanted to see is they wanted to see the Christians scream out and, and, and beg for their life. And the Christians quietly and with dignity prayed Psalm 22. And I want to say that when, when you're being eaten by starving dogs, um, you have to have touched a power greater than yourself to face that with such equanimity and, and, an, and an anchor in, in peace. And so, yes, the, the text of Matthew and the text of Mark are 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 there really for our use right now because all of us no matter where we are all of us are in a Matthew Mark moment mm-hmm. we're, we're 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 waking up to the amount of change and when we are become aware of the amount of change it's like we're in that roiling sea in a small boat being cast by the waves and and can't see land don't even know which way's up or down or, or left or right and and god is saying Come into my presence in your meditation and in your prayer. Come be anchored in my presence. That's the way through this storm. Mm-hmm. How do you interpret the the end of the Gospel of Mark where uh-huh. it doesn't necessarily tie everything up in a neat little bow? And, you know, it says they were afraid and then it just ends. Yeah. It, it after well, what I realize is is that this gospel, um, as an oral text, is being shared, and I would even say prayed, as people are locked in their houses, waiting for the Roman legion to come and arrest them and take them to their death. 
And the end of this gospel, we have a young man, they don't even get the presence of an angel at the tomb, who says to the women, go to the region of Galilee, and there you will see him. Well, the region of Galilee is code language for the Sea of Galilee, which is the which is the tomb, which is another tomb, which is the cemetery. And it is, it is, he, he's saying the way through this moment is to go deeper into this moment. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the end of the text acts as an examination of conscience. It says, and the women fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone, for fear and amazement had overtaken them. And the text just sort of mirrors back, you're in your house, you're at your table, you know that the legions are coming and they're going to knock at the door. And when they knock at the door, you're going to be asked the question, do you believe in the Christus, the Christ? And your answer is going to determine your fate. Now, what are you going to say? What about what about John? Because John, I know, is is different than a lot of the other ones, and for that reason, it's one of my favorites. Um, partly because I can I can see a lot of Neoplatonic and, and Greek themes in it, and I, I enjoy those. Um, but but how to how does the the story of John and, and how do we receive joy? How does that relate to the rest of them? Uh, well, first of all, John, we think, is coming out of the community of Ephesus, uh, late first century. And Ephesus has now become the center of Christendom. Jerusalem was destroyed. Rome, the Christians, uh, were killed and didn't regenerate for almost uh, 75 years. Um, Ephesus is now the new face of Christendom, and it's the community that is pan-tribal. And this is so important to realize that I, 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 I always want to give my tradition credit where I can give it credit. And I know, I know the omissions and the faults of, our, of my tradition. I'm very aware of that. But Christianity is the first tradition on record of being pan-tribal. Now, Judaism had the belief that everybody was one before God. But they never went that next step in, in this time period. They never went that next step to say, we have a room or a table, and it doesn't matter who your mother is. It doesn't matter whether you're free or slave. It doesn't matter whether you're Greek or Jew or, 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 or Cypriot or from Gaul. It's, it, 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 it doesn't matter whether you have wealth or not. We have an open door and a table. Come. Now, this is like a new beatific vision of the human family that we are the first tradition to practice. However, what we discover is that it's wonderful to have the vision, but none of us knows how to live it out. Uh, There's nothing in human history to this point has prepared us for this moment. To, to live with people that we've taught, been taught our whole lives are either subhuman or not human or the other. And suddenly, we're all sitting at table together, even if it's a small table. You can just hear the discussions about, you know, you know those people from the eastern provinces, they've got attitude, and those people from the west never shut up. And, 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 and anyway... John comes along, uh, the text that we call John comes along at the end of the first century because this community of Ephesus, 
which is the first community that we have a historical record of attempting to be pan-tribal, has fallen away from the vision of oneness and, and all the old jealousies, all the old privileges and hierarchies and categories have resurfaced. And John wants to do two things with, with his community. He wants to raise them up and remind them of the great glory of the one human family before God. And he wants to teach them about the internal feeling and thinking states that every human deals with their whole life that pulls us away from that growing oneness. So John sets his beautiful text as a garden. And essentially, John's saying that in the presence of the Christ, we're all readmitted to the garden. Mm-hmm. This is paradise restored, and this is the great, um, the great, the the greatest, highest gift of Christendom. However, because of the great gift, we also have great challenges, and so he has a long section in the middle of his gospel, and eventually, if I have the grace and the breath, I will write an entire book just on the Gospel of John as the blueprint for uh, for new communion, new community. But starting in the third chapter all the way through the 11th chapter are the obstacles to growing in oneness. So whereas the beginning of the Gospel and the end of the Gospel are a paean praise to oneness, the middle section is about the thinking and the feeling styles in us that pull us away from that reality. That's really neat. I love the the mandala kind of layers that you get from all these because oh. they can be read in countless different ways and then you can read them all on top of one another or separate to themselves. And so do you think that these uh, different gospels and the stories they tell i know you can look at them as like sequential like you you initially face the change you move through the suffering you see the joy uh inherent in that and then you move back in to service but can you can you also see them as almost like simultaneous states that are kind of that are all present at the same time like maybe for different different folks i i guess well, I mean, they're um, both end. Uh, for for my work, I would like people to first uh, form themselves in seeing the sequence because the sequence is so important for understanding each, the journey that each of us is on. But yes, we're actually in all four places at once, which makes things rather messy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I and and wonderful and, and glorious. But but I think just as we're experiencing all of us on the planet right now, that one or two of the texts will come to the fore, and the others will sort of recede a bit in the background. So for Luke, how do we mature in service? Is this kind of like a like a karma yoga type of scenario where we're we're participating and consummating our communion with God through our service with others, or, or would you characterize it differently? Um, both and, <laughs> uh, uh, again, um, Luke's 
and it's Luke Acts, and I would really suggest that both books were originally considered the whole gospel. It wasn't one part was the gospel. Uh, Luke Acts, and, and they are parallel constructs that in the first part that we call Luke, we see what Jesus does. And in the second part, we see what the apostles, the disciples do, which is a direct follow-through of what Jesus does. And the metaphor of Luke is the road. This was the hardest one for me to see, but I, I finally, finally the, the light went on and I realized they never get to rest anywhere. The action in, in both of these texts doesn't happen in the location. That almost all the teachings are Jesus is walking along the road teaching the disciples. And they get somewhere at nighttime and then they're briefly, and the next morning they're back out on the road and Jesus is teaching them. And it's part of the, the, the phenomenal meaning of this text is that if you are in on the journey of service, there's no destination. Mm. There, there, there's no resting place at the end of this journey. It's just, how are you walking today? Who are you walking with? By what presence and grace are, are you doing what you're doing right now? And so um, the, the, the sense here is a, a, a present momentness that all of time is in this one moment. Mm-hmm. And can you bring as much of your presence and your relationship with God to the simple acts that are put before you? I, I, and I love that Luke does some very simple things in his text. He keeps, he, he changes very few words from what Matthew and Mark have given us, and he's given it a slightly different cast. And I, is he changing, or did Jesus say the same thing in different ways at different times, which is more what I think. But in, like, for instance, in Mark, the text is pick up your cross and follow me, because that community is getting ready to go to the Circus Maximus and die. In Luke, the text is, Pick up your cross today and follow me. Because that community is on the long road of service where it's not going to help to look at tomorrow or down the road. Mm-hmm. It's only right now. And Luke is, and I, I mean, Eckhart Tolle has sort of stolen a, a title from us, but. Christianity is a tradition about the power of now. Mm-hmm. And the text of Luke is really that 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 great gong about now, 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 now. Only by adhering and doing the work of now will you build something for tomorrow. Wow. I, yeah, I love the I've always loved the image of of Jesus, you know, meeting the disciples on the road. I just love the the dialectic there of it's not about the destination of where you're going, but it's about the journey itself and that dialectic of of a meaning structure. And then, okay, well, there's no destination because our savior is gone. The Messiah has been crucified. And then this synthesis, the meaning lies within you, the meaning lies within the journey and you have access to it in every moment. And I love the way that that kind of takes that thesis, antithesis, and synthesis and just subverts the whole paradigm to where you can look at something and see you can have that non-dual stance of of suffering and enlightenment or salvation or moksha and, and have them together because they're not different things because 
you know, Samsara right. is right. Nirvana, they're, right. they're one. Right. Right. And I, I mean, I, I, my background is Lebanese. I'm first generation Lebanese. I grew up in the Maronite church and our liturgical language is Aramaic. So I've got a, a very rudimentary facility with Aramaic because we had to learn it to, to pray at church. But Aramaic is a non-dual language. I was formed, by, my very cell was formed in a non-dualistic perspective. And when you understand that none of these Gospels were ever composed in a dualistic way, they couldn't have been because Jesus didn't speak dualism. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, it's like a whole new way to understand every one of the four texts comes by this, this non-dualist uh, understanding of of the one reality that Jesus came to awaken us to. I love the, just the little uh, statements that like Peter Rollins uses. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He likes to use sayings that can be interpreted in two different ways as like kind of yeah. a, like a mini koan and yeah. to kind of push you towards that, that non-dual state. And he uses, um, nothing will make you whole and complete. And so you can view that in one way as, well, I'm, I'm going to be lacking forever and despair in it. Or you can view that as you are already whole and complete and there is nothing right. that you require. And then he also uses, um, he takes God is nowhere, but pushes it together. And so you can read it as God is nowhere or God is now here. Just those little tiny things, those little mantras are, are sometimes enough but in the grand scope of the Gospels, I can see how this would be extremely powerful. Um, so you wrote in, in your book, um, Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. Is that the new title or is that the... That's the new, the new title. That's and the new title. The, I, the, the, paper, the paperback title will be Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey of Radical Transformation, and the hardback will be just flipping it. Okay. Uh, Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. I picked out a quote um, that I, I really loved, and would you mind if I read it? Please. So, you say, our ego selves need to become grounded. We have to learn the behavior, not just the theory of a new way. Our inner guidance continues to grow so that we may reduce, even eliminate the old ego self's protective and controlling reactions to events. This path is full of psychological and spiritual transformation takes time. As it becomes familiar, we discover that a new way is more fluid and less predictable than the ones we have known. Our daily practice becomes a faithful, ongoing study of joy, compassion, and integrity, and our sense of equanimity strengthens. We comprehend that our journey will never end. The fourth path leads us back to a first new path, filled with promise. As we reflect back and peer ahead, we welcome this perpetual cycle of new beginnings and fresh opportunities we will have to learn and deepen in a conscious way. Can you unpack that a little bit? I know that's a lot. Um, it, it is a lot, but essentially what I want to invite people in to understand is, is that we have moments of awakening, and I'm very grateful for those moments of awakening. But awakening is just the first moment of a long journey of transformation that's gradual and ongoing. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm a little hesitant when I hear somebody say, you know, come attend this workshop, it's going to be transforming, or, or this festival is transforming. No, 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 no. There are events that awaken us to a journey. Mm -hmm. And we all need to be awakened, and we all need to be inspired. But let's understand 
that transformation is the second path, which feels like an utter desert, drowning ego, death, self experience. And that that path by surprise will open to an, to an insight that we could never have expected. Well, in that that insight or that gift that we could never have expected will ask us, and I would even say obligate us, to begin to offer it to others, offer it to ourselves and to others, or otherwise it's still born. And that, that, that that's the journey of transformation that's ever ongoing. So the way you describe it, it sounds similar to like how Ken Wilber talks about like a state and a stage. So, mm-hmm. so awakening, I guess, is the, the state, you know, those workshops that say you'll have a transformative experience, you know, and it might, you know, give you a state of awakening, but the stage right. is something that you have to undertake that journey to, right. to get through. I was going to use the example of, I mean, I, I bring people or I have in the past brought people to, to walk on the Camino for 60 days. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a profound awakening experience, but it doesn't transform unless you take that awakening back home and make a thousand and one small decisions that actually are going to reshape your life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the Camino turns out to be a, a great walking holiday. So when you when you end, well, quote, end the journey, or rather when you the fourth path leads back to the first new path is it is it like a like a i've i've heard zen teachers say that the enlightened master is similar to the fool um that there there are similarities between the master and and the the student because the the master has beginner's mind is there a beginner's mind way when you get to the fourth stage of this journey there is an i i like to call it holy curiosity um, and I and I use the example from the early part of the of the Gospel of Luke, where where he um, uses uh, Zechariah and Mary as almost foils to each other. Uh, Gabriel comes to both and announces to Zechariah that Zechariah's child is going to be part of the salvation of Israel, and comes and announces to Mary that she's conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Zechariah gets cursed or punished, and Mary gets said, oh, one of great favor. Now, what's the difference in both of their reactions? And the difference is, is that Zechariah took the idea to his head and seemingly began to try to figure out how it was all going to happen. And you can just hear him thinking about which which school am I going to take John to? What's the diet going to be in the house? What's good? What are I, you know? Began all the planning, and Mary took it to her heart and knew that if this was of God, all she had to do was her small part, and if it wasn't of God, then it didn't it didn't need to exist, and that's what I. I the, the fourth path is so much about, you can say the fool or holy curiosity, which is like, okay, um, God's given me a little piece to do here, but it's God's work, not mine. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an openness to, to grace and allowing it to be other places that you might not think it could be. Right. I like to provide content for folks with a Western Christian background that want to go 
deeper with their own tradition while also still being accessible for those that uh, belong to a dif- different path or that may be agnostic or even atheist. So is there a way that you could describe what you're talking about with the four gospels in a way that is maybe less leaning on the religious language? Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, Campbell talked about the, in his language, the monomyth, the one great story of all humanity. And then he spent his entire professional life showing that Buddhism knows the four paths under the four noble truths. Um, Hindu knows the four paths under the great story of, of, of Shiva and Pavarti and Ganesha. Uh, Judaism knows the four paths in the coming out of Egypt story. That um, the Navajo know the four paths in the Dine Bahane. Uh, uh, the 12 steps, the recovery work, it's the recovery work is basically the same understanding of the four paths. That he would say, and I would agree, that all of humanity is in service of the four paths. The question is, and you have free will, do you want to walk it with awareness and be in harmony with it? Or do you want to make another choice? Mm-hmm. But it but it undergirds everything that we as humans do and are in the way we grow and change. I mean, I know it as a clinical psychologist, what I discovered is every psychological method that I studied and was trained in was another way of describing the four paths. They had their particular way to access it, but every one of them, this is this is how you heal. This is how you grow. Why do you think that some people, when they experience uh, suffering, let it break themselves open and yield to it and what it can teach them and grow from it and undergo the journey? Whereas sometimes suffering just tends to shut people down and and break them down and lead them further into ignorance or into sin or um, unskillfulness. I wish I knew the answer. (laughs) I mean, as a clinical psychologist, as a spiritual director, I wish I knew the answer because I've seen both. And I can't say that one knows a greater presence of God than the other. it is a tremendous mystery to me about how one transforms and one shrinks. Mm. So since this podcast is primarily about spiritual practice, um, what is your method of choice as far as spiritual practice goes? Do you do centering prayer or do you do uh, Lectio or? Uh, It's interesting because I, um, I come out of the Eastern Christian tradition, which is largely cataphatic. With uh, a, so I, I appreciate centering prayer, and I do a bit of centering prayer. But my my main go to at home practice is Lexio, where I take the Gospel of the Coming Sunday, and I pray and I work it and I draw it and I do poetry with it, uh, and I. And I meditate on words in it, and I go walking in nature uh, and see and and trying to be in the now with the text and see what comes to me mm. and dance it and move it and breathe it. So it it's um, it, it's hard to 
to in to it's not as um, easy a practice uh, in some ways as centering prayer, which is more about sitting in the quiet. Mm-hmm. Because with with my prayer, I'm much more uh, uh, wanting to move to actually physically move my body. Mm-hmm. And that's good. I mean, I I don't think centering prayer or apophatic methods are for everyone. I I know a lot of people try to try to push that, but but I think there's a diversity of tactics to to get to the same place. I I mean, because I, I I certainly centering prayer is an element, although I wouldn't say it's my main road. And I appreciate the way you just said that, Jory, because to me, apophatic and cataphatic are two equal royal roads, mm-hmm. but that every practitioner can be um, enlivened by knowing a bit of the other, mm-hmm. even though probably one is going to be your main, uh, your main way, but bringing in elements of the other will enliven that. So for me, I would say that my main way is, is with imagery and body, but bringing in elements of centering and, and the apathetic. You know, was it, was it Herodite? You'd probably know better than I would. Was it Heroditus or Heraclitus that said the way up and the way down are the same way? You may know that better than I do. I believe it's Heraclitus. Okay. I always get them mixed up. <laughs> um, um, t- test me on that. I, I may be wrong. <laughs> I would just say, what, what are the things that I, I'm here in Spain, and I might be here in Spain in lockdown for a long time. And I'm really, the one thing I really miss is my library. It's like I can mm. see the book on the shelf, and it's like, it's thousands of miles from here. So you're not a, you're not a Kindle type? Uh, I, I have a certain. I, I have about four books on Kindle. Oh wow! But uh, but it's they're they're not the classics, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely more of a, a tactile person anyway. I like to touch and underline and highlight and all that stuff. Um, Absolutely. So I, I very much considering um, this moment that we're all in. Um, I want to lead folks in a meditation on the end of Matthew's Gospel where. Uh, we disciples are going up the mountain to the risen one and his, um, his words from, from that mountain. And I, I'll, I'll leave that to open up in the meditation. Okay, great. Where can people go to, to keep up with you and keep up with your work? Oh, please uh, go to my website, which is Quadratos, and that's Q-U-A-D, quad for foreignness, raw, R-A. TOS.com, so quadratus.com. And um, you'll there, there's a page there of interviews, which has many, many, many podcasts that I've been on. Uh, Rob Bell, the deconstructionist, the poema, the what if project, you know, can I say this at church and on and on and on. It's all there for free listening. And eventually this this podcast will also be there. And you will also find uh, um, access to the books. Um, there's an audio series that was produced a number of years ago about the four gospel journey as a process of, of uh, spiritual transformation. Uh, anyway, the, the, I'm really proud of the many people who have worked on this website for 15 years. It's got and it, it's chock full of resources which are there for you for a click on. Awesome. Go. 
Well, I'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes. Dr. Shai, I want to thank you for, for meeting with me. I appreciate it so much. I've been wanting to talk to you forever. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. It has been a real honor. And thank you for your brilliant, radiant heart. 